Assalamu alaikum. Jazakallah <coughs> for everyone um, tuning into this week's episode for Dean Talk. Sorry about the delay. Uh, we're just having a little coffee break before we start. I've just finished Tarabi, so we need to. Um, uh, what's that word? Replenish ourselves. Replenish ourselves. Um, so today we are very fortunate to have a special guest amongst us, um, a good close friend of mine, Mona Abu Shreb, who is also the Imam of Sundarlaj Jami Masjid. Um, we also have our nephew Niaz joining us and um, our co-host Jihan is back from his uh, COVID-related break. So I'll hand it over to him. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh everyone. Um, obviously firstly, I want to thank Imam Saab obviously for taking his time out, you know, to, you know, to spend some time with ourselves, giving him, giving us an insight into his life, um, and the struggles and challenges, and um, also the uh, just the life of an Imam Saab, which most people don't really get a chance to to see. Um, I think we were just talking just before we did come on uh, come on live, is uh, for a lot of people this is a new insight because you do see an Imam Saab at the Masjid, and it's kind of hard to approach someone like that, you know, if you know, if you're just a general layman. So if you don't mind, Imam Saab, if, if it's okay, if you just give a little introduction just about yourself, where you study and stuff, just a little short mini, it not have to be long. <laughs> um, can I just start by uh, saying thank you for inviting me to join you today, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, about myself, Mullah uh, Abu Khalid, I think if I had to, you know, say too much on this, that you'll get bored. You know me <laughs> for how many years now? Uh, it's Long time. beyond counting, 30 years plus perhaps. Yeah. So uh, I've been the imam here at Sunderland Chester Old Mosque, which is, uh, by the way, the oldest mosque in Sunderland. Uh, it serves the largest congregation uh, in Sunderland as well. I've been the imam here. This is my 17th year. Um, I studied mainly in a few seminaries, religious schools uh, in the UK. I began in the uh, famous or infamous, depending how you take it, <laughs> Coventry Road in Birmingham. So Coventry Road, Birmingham was really famous back in the days. So a lot of uh, graduates, some who are quite famous right now, initially began their studies there. Um, they generally moved on from there. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was one of the earliest places. That yeah, I think that was one. Of, yeah, uh, that was set up initially in the uh, early 80s, I think. Oh. Early 80s or late 70s. Uh, Hazrat Mawlana Abdul Rahim Saab uh, Nuakhali. Uh, he was actually a classmate of our old Imam in Sunderland. Uh, you, you will know him, Mawlana Abu Khalid will know him, uh, Mawlana Rafiqul Alam Sab, Rahmatullahi Alayhi, who was one of the oldest Imams and a teacher of many, many of the uh, uh, young people in Sunderland and now middle-aged people in Sunderland. He was one of our long-serving Imams, he was our teacher as well. So his classmate established uh, Comte Road Mosque and uh, School. So I began my studies there and then later went on to uh, Medina Tulum Kidderminster and from there, I, I studied the majority of my uh, Islamic studies there, completed my hibs, started my Alimiya program, and then I was fortunate enough to go to Damascus to study the Arabic language in Damascus University for one year. Uh, after my return, I uh, returned to Kidderminster and then changed to Jamia Islamia Bolton, where Molana was also studying at that time, mm-hmm. and I completed my studies there. I graduated in 2005, and from then, till now, I've been serving as the Imam, serving this community in St. Lanchester Old Mosque. So, uh, obviously, you've been, like you said, since 2005, you've been the Imam, so you would have seen a lot of challenges come and go. But what do you think at the moment, especially, 
I think the question is more aimed towards pre-COVID and post-COVID. Yeah. What's the where's the challenges changed between as a community that you see them on a day-to-day basis from before COVID and now? What what's the differences? I think the most uh, evident and conspicuous impact uh, COVID has had on the community is. Uh, for me, as an imam, being situated in the mosque is how people have become detached from the mosque. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, the numbers we were seeing attending uh, for regular salah and for Jumu'ah, there's a huge segment of our community that have just magically disappeared. Yeah. You know, so uh, one age group that really sticks out is my particular age group. So we're talking about um, 30s to 50s. Mm-hmm. That age group, there were regular attendees. Uh, uh, pre-COVID in the masjid and now it's hard to find a lot of them uh, mm. uh, um, after COVID in the masjid so can one I just, of the, um, clarify one that yeah? I don't fall in the 50s yeah? <laughs> <laughs> but you're not far behind <laughs> not far behind you bang on in the middle I think. Um, in that group so a lot of people uh, I think I, I don't think the reason is because they're actually scared of COVID anymore it's yeah. just the fact that they've been detached for so long, yeah. uh, they've become used to it, and mm-hmm. perhaps it's laziness or something like that, and uh, that's been something very worrying uh, for me personally as an imam. So one of the things that comes to my mind is, like, how do you actually overcome that if, for example, you're giving bayans at masjid, if they're not there, they're not going to listen to the bayans, so yeah. how, do you, how do you see, like, overcoming that um, like challenge particularly? I think it's reaching out to people, it's mm-hmm. reaching out to people. Personally, I'm not a big fan of uh, digital uh, methods of mm-hmm. uh, reaching out to people and engagement. Yeah. But just because I'm not a personal fan, I'm participating in something right now. Yeah, it's yeah. beggars can't be choosers. This yeah, yeah. is the way forward. Yeah. This is the uh, new world we live in. And if you're not going to try to engage people with these uh, uh, methods and platforms, then you risk being completely detached Definitely, uh, and having any significance in their lives whatsoever. So I think it's really important to diversify how you reach out to people. Mosques need to diversify yeah. um, in, in their approach as well. But do you think that is the main challenge at the moment that the community is facing? Not just obviously in Sunderland, but it's, uh, you know across the board, like in the UK in general. I think um, there's it's for a mosque. Yeah, the you know the mosque people are engaged with mosques. To the point that they will worship, they'll go. Uh, maybe in other communities, it's much more a part of their lives than perhaps even this community. You'll see a lot of youngsters yeah. going to the mosque. But how well are they integrate, integrated with the mosque? How well are they engaged with the mosque? That, you're absolutely right, is a big challenge. And uh, it's not enough just to be attending for the five daily prayers. Five daily prayers, that's really good meaning, but just for some prayers, mm-hmm. um, it's not enough. Masjids need to play a really proactive role and address many of the other needs that people um, are yearning uh, to be fulfilled. So let me just give you an example of that. So for example, their uh, access to religion and their uh, religious education, their perceptions of uh, uh, religious learning uh, and religious communities, a lot of that is derived from online forums now on online platforms and many of that is detached from reality they might be listening to someone based in america or based in some other country that however uh informative that talk is it's not directly addressed to this community 
yeah, so relevant. Yeah. So and and that is a really integral, important uh, a component of religious learning context, yeah. and without that, you fall into the pitfall of misunderstandings, mm-hmm. um, uh, being rash and judgmental, and all of these things. So, its context is really important, and uh, and the only institute that can really fulfil that for the average person we have in these in this country is the mosque. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned um, about um, engaging with the community, right? So, um, as an imam, do you feel that our masjid is engaging enough? I mean, I don't want to put you in the spotlight, but yeah. do you think we could do more? Or um, To be completely honest with you, I don't think we are at all. Yeah. Um, uh, you just have to look around the country and much of the good work that many mosques up and down the country uh, on good services, they are providing. Even that is not enough for where we find ourselves and where we find yeah. uh, a lot of our youngsters. So I, I don't think our mosque and all, uh, some of that of no doubt will fall back on me. Uh, I don't think the status quo is enough. Yeah. I think uh, one of the things, I know this is a little slightly bit off topic, is for the men in the community, they can go to the masjid if yeah. they choose to do so. Yeah. For women, and obviously I think I found out after getting married, like it's much more difficult for a woman, isn't it, to feel part of that community. Like you said, they do feel detached. Like um, The only thing I can recommend, for example, my wife is like, I'll oh, do an online course or yeah. something. You know, yeah. I'm doing an online course, so I was thinking, I'll just do the same for her. But how do you think that, that interaction between the masjid and the women yeah. in, in the community? That's a real pressing issue in the community and in Southeast Asian communities mm-hmm. uh, primarily. Now, that is a... Um, a debate that needs to be had. Um, I'm not going to sit here and give like a verdict on whether women should go or not. Yeah. Um, I think that can, considering my position, can slightly be problematic uh, in uh, how people uh, react to it. Because one uh, a teacher of mine said something very uh, uh, important for any person engaged in community work is that you need to walk with your community, not race ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when the time is right for something, the, the, the change needs to be brought in. But if you're a bit hasty, then it can have a, um, you know, a negative effect. Now, regarding uh, sisters feeling a part of the community, it's easy to say, or participate in some online course yeah, yeah, but we know every single person knows it's not the same thing yeah. you really have to be a part of something to f- uh, uh, to feel like you belong yeah. and to, to feel like uh, you know you're valued and in our southeast asian communities i do feel uh, honestly that our sisters are very undervalued mm-hmm. there's not enough concern given for their religious well-being and it's not always about a religious or, or a black and white verdict <coughs> That oh well, for women it's more virtuous to read at home, yeah. which is the default opinion amongst to uh, strong um, uh, scholarly opinion that even though women uh, are permitted to go to the mosque, there uh, it's more virtuous to read at home. That that might be the case in black and white, but what's more practical? What's better for our um, circumstances now? In relation to that, I would like to mention something, one more thing about uh, digital uh, or online uh, forms of education and media. One of the main problems today is that when it comes to our religious understanding and scholarship, 
we, we tend to think there's a one-size-fits-all approach, yeah, yeah. and that's really problematic, you know, because we've got access to everything. We can sit in the comfort of our uh, um, sitting rooms and just find out what someone based in America, what someone says in Saudi Arabia, what, what scholar says in India, or what one scholar in Malaysia says, yeah. and we'll... And, and, um, will assume that that opinion is valid for everywhere and anywhere. And historically, yeah. that's never been the case. Historically, Muslim societies were very diverse, but there were a part, you know, people in Iraq were following their scholarly understanding uh, uh, peculiar to that region of the world. If you went further eastwards or westwards, there were differences. And and because they weren't interacting through the click of a button, they, were, they weren't quick to criticize each other's opinion. Whereas nowadays... You, you always assume there's one size fits all. So if you even propose the subject of women coming to the masjid, there'll be a reaction based on traditional understandings of um, Bangladesh or Hindustan or Pakistan yeah. and the connections these communities have with ulama in those areas. They, they'll bypass your uh, proposal and just approach scholars in those areas who, in all honesty, um, are influenced by their societal norms yeah, yeah, yeah. and they will give a verdict based on that yeah, yeah. so i think there's more to it um uh, it's not a case of they should be allowed or, or not but i genuinely believe there is a strong case to provide some real interactive mm. uh, engagement for them uh whether that's in the form of the masjid or something else there gen- genuinely is a pressing need and case for that in this day and age yeah um, I'm interested in something else, Mara. Um, yeah. So obviously, you're the Imam. You've been the Imam since 2005, and obviously, I see you in the masjid, and um, you know you're leading prayers, and we're praying behind you. But as an Imam, you're also a father of yeah. what, is it four kids? Yeah, yeah, four kids, mashallah. So you know, how do you deal with day-to-day life and struggles and? Like obviously with me, I go to work. Um, my wife does most of the stuff. You know, kudos to her. I I go to work, eat, and you know, go to the gym. That's about it. But you know, how do you actually manage your day? I think um, there's there's plus points and negative points when it comes to <laughs> giving your time f- uh, to family. And you know, in this day and age, um, it's so important that we give adequate time to our families, and they're the people will be questioned about first and foremost. Yeah before everyone else so my duty and my desire to serve my community that the uh, duty to my family and uh, the obligation on me to serve my family and look after their welfare is much greater of course of course so um, i must make time for them so there's a lot of plus points so for example Every morning, I can take my sc- uh, children to school. Yeah, I don't think um, you can manage that because no, no. if you have a normal uh, or nine to five or eight to six job, increasingly the hours are getting longer and longer nowadays. <laughs> but um, you won't be able to do that. So, as an imam, I've got a certain degree of flexibility that's very positive. I can spend a lot of time with my children. Um, but on the other side, you know, uh, um, you you always got. You're always busy in some way or another as an imam. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a lot of um, uh, type commitment that you have to Yeah, make. so for example, as an imam, you're never really free. Yeah. The, the Your namaz duties, your salah duties are always there. And you always have to be readily available for people. So um, I'll be getting calls all throughout the day. Um, when I go for a salah, if someone approaches me and they need to talk for half an hour, I can't really just say, but well, I haven't got the time now. That's <laughs> yeah. not how people don't. 
deal with the imam as they would a professional. Yeah. They, they wouldn't say, oh, let's book so a slot in and, well, he's available during this time. You can't really do that as an imam. You, you really need to be there whenever people uh, want you to be. So if someone stands you up and gives once half an hour, you have to be willing to give that. If someone in the community uh, needs something, say there's a death in the community, you, you have to put that uh, all family commitments aside and be there for your community and congregation members. So there's good and bad when it comes to family. Um, I'm very close to them, so I'm very rarely away for long periods of time from home. But at the same time, uh, you know, the community is like a second family. You really have to, to be willing to be there for them. You know, if it's a job, a normal job, you can say, well, it's out of hours, I can't do anything, you know? Yeah, Call back on Monday morning or something. But you can't <laughs> do that as an imam, you really have to... So, would you say your everything. life is kind of like, I'm not saying it's a celebrity, but, you know, mm. kind of like a celebrity where everything and anything you do and say, it's out there. Yeah. And is that, like, a lot of pressure on you to, like, um, to, to stay in the role as an imam yeah. 24 hours? The thing is, you're absolutely right there. There is an element of scrutiny um, on the life of an imam, uh, I will always think twice, how will people see this action of mine? Yeah. Um, even if it's legitimate and lawful in the eyes of the Sharia, <laughs> I always have to think, how will my uh, community judge me and how will my congregation judge me? Because a really important part of being an imam is that you need to have the respect of your community or yeah, else, yeah. if you don't, your words mean nothing. You know, So if there's some kind of dispute and they, they take an imam, uh, to advise them, they're only taking that imam because both parties respect their word or the va- have some value attached to it. So if you lose esteem in the eyes of your community, you can't really be an effective imam. Um, just remember the thing, uh, the fav- the story of Yusuf alayhi salam, uh, when the king, you, we all know the story when obviously the king asked for the interpretation and uh, Yusuf alayhi salam gave the interpretation and then um, he asked for the release of Yusuf alayhi salam and to be brought to the company of the king and Yusuf alayhi salam, he declined straight away. Yeah. He declined and, and he said that um, uh, ask what's the condition of the women who cut their hands. Meaning, he until that matter wasn't clarified, he didn't want to come out from the jail. And the Holy Prophet in praise of Yusuf said, that if I stayed in the prison as long as Yusuf did, then I would have answered the call of the king, meaning he'd been in the prison for so long that any chance to get out, anyone would have answered, um, gone out, but he didn't. And the wisdom behind that, many scholars point out, is the reputation of a person engaged in calling people uh, to the deen and calling people to good, that if you've got a mark on your reputation, then your words will... Uh, ring hollow and fall flat so as an imam you're definitely under scrutiny but it's not a hard task if you're an absolute hypocrite then it will be a hard task but if i think any person who's engaged in as an imam they do it with with an element of um sincerity and a sincere desire to serve the community in a religious sense so there's not a disconnect between much of their private life and their public life so it's kind of easier to maintain if you, if if I can if I express that. Yeah. So, uh, did you always want to be an imam? Absolutely not. My <laughs> honest truth is, let me tell you about when I was young. <laughs> you know, attitudes to uh, Islam and the expression of Islam have changed phenomenally in the last thirty years. 
um, since when I was growing up. When I was growing up, Islam was very unfashionable. Wearing Islamic yeah. uh, or, or visibly or what's considered Islamic clothing, like the thawb and the... Even a darya. This, yeah, mm-hmm. even a beard was very unfashionable. Being a scholar or a alim or a mullah or mashab was was very unfashionable in most uh, people's eyes. Only in very religious uh, uh, people's eyes were they, um, you could say, really appreciated. Um, so I grew up with that kind of image as well. And the image of a madrasa and religious learning was what we would hear of horror stories from back home. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard, have, have you heard of something called Zalibet? Zalibet, Mona will know, he studied Madrasa for a while. There were disciplining rods, um, um, to put it euphemistically, <laughs> disciplining rods <laughs> that would uh, leave its mark. Okay, a euphemistic you put again. So we used to hear all these horror stories. So I was very adverse to madrasa. Anyone who said about a madrasa, I would immediately get up and leave the room. <laughs> That's how. And when I first, when my parents sent me to madrasa, I was there for one year, one and a half years, crying every night, trying my best to leave. But again, our elders they had a different mentality. That was, we've decided you must stay there. <laughs> okay. Um, so when I, but obviously my mind changed as I learned about Islam and um, fell in love with my religion. Uh, our religion, uh, my attitude changed, but I had no intention of becoming an imam. When I graduated, that was the year when uh, a good colleague of ours, Molana Asad Sab, who was the imam prior to me, he had been serving for a number of years. He yeah. happened to resign that year. So um, that offer came straight away. And my initial response was no. <laughs> and uh, my family respected my decision but the senior imam who I'm with at the moment now uh, um, Sheikh Hafiz Imam Uddin Sahib he was in hospital at that time and he called me he was having a uh, I think it was a angiogram something like uh, angioplaster or, or something like that and he called me to his bedside he said look don't be rash in your decision um, just take the opportunity accept the imam position and if you don't like it, you can resign in six months. Now it's been 16 and a half years. <laughs> oh, so is right. Madrasa something that you'd want for your children? Um, definitely. Definitely. I mean, Madrasa, when the Madrasa I went to and Mullah went to, we might think it's only 30 years ago in this country, but a lot has changed. So yeah. I would be hesitant to send him my children to a Madrasa if it was the same as it was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now with all the advances and all of the good law we have in this country, I have been grateful for British law in many respects and how organized and thorough it is. So there's been lots of improvements in that regard. Madrasas are run, many of them are very professionally and thoroughly uh, uh, well managed. So I would be happy sending them now. And uh, looking at uh, you know secondary schools, and the, the lack of discipline and many of the, uh, uh, you could say, the social conditioning that's taking place in uh, yeah. schools that didn't exist when I went to school. Looking at all of that, I feel that as a father, it's necessary for me, not just good, but necessary for me to send my children to an Islamic school. Yeah, definitely to protect their um, their minds, yeah. attitudes. And their Islamic norms. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I think that kind of led on to my next question, which is like, how do you actually stay good in a world that's so corrupt and so bad? 
Um, I mean, that's always been the case. That's always been the case. If you look at the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what kind of world was he sent? Was he, rahmatullahi mean the mercy of uh, the whole of creation, for the whole of creation, what kind of world was he sent to? A, a world of savagery, of barbarity, of idolatry, mm. of usurping of people's rights, of burying their daughters alive. That's the world he was set, sent to, and that's the revolutionary, uh, uh, what do you call it, impact of Islam that it's formidable. Um, of course, this was in relation to the Battle of Uhud, but that. Don't be weak and don't grieve. You are uppermost in Kuntum Mu'min if you are believers. But we have to have uh, faith in our own faith. Understand that if we really internalize Islam, be devout and strong Muslims, it's easy. We'll manage wherever we go. Nothing. That Islam always dominates. It's, up, uh, it's um, uh, um, elevated and it is never dominated. So that's the very essence and nature of our religion that you throw us anywhere if a person of sound faith, they will overcome come that situation. So there's no fear for a real resolute Muslim in meeting and rising up to the challenges that they face. The problem is our own internal weakness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask Marana, so with that in mind, where um, we're living in obviously a corrupt world as it is, as an imam, do you face many challenges where people are turning away from the faith or their faith is weak? Because of how society is, especially in Sunderland. Yeah. Um, you know, I wouldn't say it's like a flood or a deluge um, in Sunderland, but you, it's just a matter of time. You know, I've always considered Sunderland as late to the party and everything. <laughs> <laughs> always 10 or 15 years behind everything. So if you want to like feel the pulse of the Muslim community, perhaps look in London uh, or bigger cities, You'll see where it's all heading and then understand that that's slowly inching its way forward to places like Sunderland. Yeah, so the, there's a huge dilemma, huge dilemma, just as people are becoming more and more. But there's hope as well. I don't always see um, doom and gloom everywhere. I see a lot of hope. A lot of the youngsters, mashallah, the purity of their heart, hearts, they're really sincere when they turn to Islam. Their passion for their deen. I see that and that's what doesn't dishearten me because I see that that pure, clear, simple message of Islam when it's presented to them, that truth, that the appeal of it, it reaches uh, the hearts of the younger generation so easily. You know, one, our senior Imam, Hafiz Imam Muddin Sahib, he, he said something to me and I found that insightful as well. He said that in these countries, the types of sins are based upon um Desires, the shehwani guna, you know that it's all about chasing your desires and um, your pleasures of this material world. Yeah. They, a lot of the youngsters that don't have the really deadly sins of the heart, arrogance, pride, stubbornness, jealousy, hatred, you know, they, and a lot of the time, initially, they will, the, the sins of the uh, desires, they'll uh, bar you from Islam. With maturity, with understanding, a little bit of the harshness of the world and people f will leave that and that truth and clarity of Islam will, uh, will, will be accessible to them. They'll respond to it. Whereas 
in many of our other countries, people have more diseases of the heart. This was his uh, um, analysis. They have illnesses of the heart. And these illnesses of the heart, they don't go. Even when you're 80 years old, they don't go. Yeah. So it's much harder for them to perhaps respond to the pure simplicity of Islam. So this positivity, it's not all doom and gloom. There's a lot of positivity. And I think it's just working with our youngsters, working and, um, you know, strengthening their iman, making sure that they have a, a good understanding of Islam. They're connected with their deen. And really importantly, the spiritual side of the deen. What's happening today, people are becoming attached to Islam, but in a ritualistic fashion. So, I'll do my prayers. Yeah. And even if they're sincere, even if they're sincere, it's very ritualistic. They'll do their salah, they'll do their song, they'll give their zakat. But that spiritual element, that's disappeared. Yeah. And we need to reconnect people with their spiritual element, focusing on their spiritual development, their internal development. That, that really makes them strong. And like um, impervious to like attacks on their uh, deen and on their iman and on their faith. So it's not all doom and gloom. There's a lot of positivity in, in I see in the youngsters as well in their um, coming towards the deen. It's very, very sincere. I see a lot of that. Now the, it's kind of two extremes. There's kind of no middle ground sometimes. <laughs> I think that uh, you've literally just answered the question yeah. I wrote down there. It was, I don't know if you want to add something else to it, but like in terms of, um, I see it with my generation, obviously, like Islam is just rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts. Yeah. So how do we actually rekindle that spirituality where people don't, maybe like, for example, mm. mama was the first person to ever speak to me about spirituality, spiritual yeah. heart yeah. cleansing and yeah. stuff. And obviously now I'm love, I've got my own sheikh and stuff. Yeah. So he's telling us like what what's, um, yeah. you know, how to connect ourselves with yeah. Allah. But for the younger generation that don't have that, or maybe yeah. they don't have the parents or the, you yeah. know, the, the figures in their life yeah. where... They do embed spirituality. Yeah. How does that come into Islam? Because people think, well, oh, spirituality, that's all like meditation, all that, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter in Islam. Yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. I think, yeah, that's a fantastic question. And it's one of the most significant things that is absent from uh, Muslims' lives today. Um, you know, we have, you know, all of these uh, aspects of Islam and parts of our tradition in the Holy Prophet and Islam's times, they were there in essence, but they weren't formalized. And yeah. as time went on, they became formalized. So, for example, Islamic law. Islamic law was in the time of the Holy Prophet. It's there in the Quran, it's there in the teachings of the Sunnah. But then, as time uh, went by, it became formalized. Um, uh, people devoted specifically uh, to that subject themselves, their time and efforts. They uh, formalized in the form of the schools of fiqh. <coughs> Uh, Islamic judiciary systems were set up around them, and then whole empires were managed according to that law. Oh, all right, sorry, yeah. Um, it's naturally you have a okay. So, the same thing happened with Islamic spirituality. Now, Islamic spirituality is there in the time of the Prophet, in the lives of the Sahaba, yeah. and then over time it became formalized. Mm. Uh, there were experts in that field, books written on the subject, um, and this was termed historically as tasawwuf, yeah. as tasawwuf or suluk, traversing the path, tasawwuf, uh, which essentially was uh, gaining Allah's pleasure through eradicating all the evils of the heart and um, internal and external evils and adorning ourselves with external and internal virtues. 
So that's the essence of is Islamic spirituality, and that is a rich tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, we've detached ourselves from that tradition. It's all there. It's all in the books. There are people um, who still practice it, who still um, or attach significance to it. It's important that we seek such true and sincere practitioners of the Sawwuf out and spend time in their company. It's essentially the company of the pious people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a beginner who is a little bit iffy about all of this because you hear uh, claims of and accusations of uh, innovation, yeah, yeah, especially in association with the Sawwuf, um, it's quite sad. There's good and bad in everything. Mm-hmm. There's innovation in every aspect of the religion. Um, it's about sifting the good from the bad. Um, but I think a good starting point is the lives of the companions. Mm-hmm. You know, when we want to study Islam, if you see the average person, they become religious, they start attending the mosque. And what's their first port of call when it comes to learning? The basic rules, the ritualistic rules. Yeah. And then, more often than not, they'll get um, involved in um, opinions, opinions yeah. and <laughs> conflict. Yeah. Who's right and who's wrong? Who's upon truth and who isn't? Who's going to hell and who isn't? You know, this is the wrong way. Yeah. This is the wrong way. These are academic uh, discussions that are best left in the books. And the way you you should only delve into these issues after many, many years of formal training and um, study. Mm-hmm. But what happens? The average uh, Tom, Dick and Harry just gets involved in those things straight away and the sidetrack and see as irrelevant that whole spiritual development, which is essential part of learning and um, becoming a and Muslim. becoming a good Muslim. Mm-hmm. So I think for the beginner, a good part is to study the lives of the Sahaba. Mm-hmm. You look at their real lives. You know, you see the spirituality in their life. You know, when you, when we talk about love of the Prophet, you see the love of the Prophet in the lives of the Sahaba. It's these are not the actions of people who took religion as just religious formula and yeah. a few practical external actions. Yeah. The, these are the actions of people whose soul and the very depth of their heart was filled with the reality of Islam. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's all there. If you if we're a bit iffy about what um, early of Junaid Baghdadi and Sidi Sakati and. Uh, Harith, uh, Imam Harith al-Muhasibi these were the early proponents of the Sawwuf or some of the latest like Ibn Arabi and you know controversial whatever but uh, and others and and teach and write in their books or Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani what they write then wait don't no need to go into all of these things right now look at the lives of the Sahaba you'll see the spirituality in their life and then you'll see that why they were so firm why they revolutionized the world Really good. Um, different kind of service to the community, Mala. So I'm gonna wake people up that are not listening. And, um, <laughs> so basically, uh, what I want to ask is, um, as an Imam of Sunderland, yeah. have you dealt with any gin issues? Gin issues. Um, <laughs> whilst I've been an Imam, nothing clear cut. Okay. Nothing clear cut. Um, I have seen people, and people have come with complaints that it is quite evident that there's um, the influence of jinn in these things, but nothing major. I've dealt with a few incidents in my student days which were quite explicit. And in the student in that room? Yeah, meaning I wasn't young then. I was just before graduating, so I was um, uh, 
adult man. I was about 25 years old, 24, 25 years old. Um, so I'm not going to go into too much detail on that. <laughs> yeah. But I think uh, I always say to people that give the gins a break. Everything is their fault. <laughs> <laughs> give the gins a break. Everything is their fault. So Buchara, the poor gin, they get blamed for everything. Um, it's not always their fault. There's a lot of superstition, a lot of assumption. A lot of people, when they don't want to face the some of the real problems that are plaguing them, drug addiction, um, <clears throat> social issues, mental issues, they'll just brush it under the carpet by blaming the jinn. So that's not the right way, but yeah, yeah. there definitely is uh, uh, the influence of jinn in the lives of many people, and you can see that. And um, my advice to people who are experiencing that or suffering that is the advice of the sunnah. There's plenty in the sunnah getting this person to read, do this and do that, and we don't even read the du'as in the sunnah, you know, yeah, the yeah. reading. That is my big thing. The mu'awidatayn, the quls, reading all the du'as, so much of it in the sunnah. Read that and inshallah the effect of shaitan and jinns will have to uh, disappear. So, I was con- expecting a good story there, man. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I'll tell you one, okay. that when I was a student, okay. you know in the hadith, the Holy Prophet so authentic um, hadith, uh, the version I can remember is in Abu Dawood and I'm sure it's in other books of um, hadith as well, that the Holy Prophet forbade us from using bones to purify ourselves after answering the call of nature. You must understand, nowadays no one uses um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, clot, clots of earth, um, but in Bangladesh and in other countries they still use clots of earth. Um, what did they call it? I forgot the word now for a moment. Dela, Dela. I think. No, there was another word. Uh, I used to know about Bangladesh. Okay. Uh, um, you've spent a lot, long time in Bangladesh. Um, if you go to some of the village mosques, you'll find there's like a yeah, little yeah. anthill kind of. Yeah. It looks like an anthill. You're supposed to break a little bit of earth off and use that to clean yourself after answering the call of nature. Na- natural toilet issue on that. Yeah. So, and that was the norm throughout most of the world. And obviously, in Arabian society, whatever was there at their disposal in the wilderness, they would use. So the Holy Prophet forbade certain items, um, paper, a lot of others that are forbidden, obviously paper because it's a means of knowledge. It's kind of not sacred in the religious sense, but it deserves great honor and respect. One of the things the Holy Prophet forbid the use of was dried bones. And the reasoning he gave for that was, فَإِنَّهُ زَادُ إِخْوَانِكُمْ الْجِنْ Because it is the... uh, the risk it is the food yeah it is the sustenance of your brothers the jinn so that was in hadith and the commentators say that after we eat the meat of something and we leave the bone either the bones are themselves uh, the food of the jinn or the bones are re you could say they they reform themselves in a way that is appealing for the jinn so there's flesh on them even though the bones towards this some form of flesh on them that the jinns will uh, consume as sustenance for themselves. So that was obviously, we believe in what the Holy, whatever the Holy Prophet said. On one particular incident, there was one individual who was influenced by jinn, and this was quite a clear case. And what happened, we had him seen to someone, and then afterwards the person said that the effect of the jinn hasn't left them completely. So we sat down to eat and this person who had been possessed and was acting 
kind of normal now. We were having fried chicken, uh, um, <laughs> a crowd favourite in, in Madrasa days. Coolio's. Coolio's, yeah. Coolio's. If you're having Bolton, make sure you try Coolio's. Oh, no, I've, t- I've taken them now. All right. Okay, okay. Uh, what did you think was nice, yeah? Was that the Donner place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It was good, though. Yeah, it's, it's good, but back then, in Madrasa, you just tasted else. like 24 karat gold. <laughs> you know, if, if you could ever taste 24 karat gold. So, anyway, the person in question... They were just pretending to eat the meat of the chicken. And then as soon as everyone else eating was leaving the chicken bones on the side, they literally were uh, eating the bones, chewing them and swallowing them. Not eating any of the meat, yeah. um, eating the uh, chicken bones. You know, even the hard, difficult parts, uh, they were chewing them and swallowing them, not even spitting them out. Yeah. And then there was a friend next to me and we had both studied in Syria and we knew, obviously we studied classical Arabic, but because we resided in Damascus for some time, we knew some of the street language. And we communicated in the street language, pointing that out. I was saying to my friend, look, are you noticing this? And look what he's doing. So you two were talking amongst yourselves? Yeah, we were talking amongst ourselves in Damascus. Um, street language mm-hmm. and no one even the teachers who were proficient in Arabic uh, would have understood that mm-hmm. because unless it was someone who had been living in Damascus yeah. they yeah. wouldn't have understood that at all and the person in question he was a beginner student he hadn't even got to grips with uh, classical Arabic yet let alone uh, what we call Amiya or Darija which was the street language the colloquial language of Damascus and the shocking thing was the person understood every single word wow. and they said that, oh, this is what you're saying about me. Don't think I don't understand. And he repeated everything we said and explained it to us. Did you um, run away? <laughs> we what got smacked. So we thought, oh, this incidents like that are really like um, eye opening. And you, you really feel there is the existence of the jinn. It's reinforced your mind in them. It, which is an integral part of our faith. Exactly, it's yeah. in the Holy Quran. But um, that you're reinforced in relation to your belief about the jinn. But at the same time, it's very important that we don't become uh, paranoid about it. Yeah. You know, someone has a little trip and, okay, it's a jinn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I was going to ask you, as well, Mara, you know, so earlier on you mentioned about um, giving priority when there's a death in the community. Yeah. Um, Prior to you becoming an imam, have you ever dealt with a, like a deceased body or, or is that something that you dealt with as an imam? Um, and how was the first experience? Uh, the first time I actually uh, experienced death was the death of my own father. Okay. Oh, um, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. And I was about um, 18 years old then. Yeah, yeah. And as the only person, my brother-in-law, who's a scholar and alim, is the imam yeah, yeah. Yeah. of Darlington Mosque. Um, but... Direct family studying at that time was just myself. Okay. Were you in Darlum at that time as well? Yeah. Okay. I was in Kidderminster then. And 18, nowadays looking back, it is quite a young age. Um, Especially if you're um, in a protected environment like a madrasa yeah. where you haven't had life experience. Yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right. And But with me, a lot of like responsibility and maturity was kind of thrust upon me. Okay. Why? Because I was the first person studying in my family. So even my older brothers, they kind of respected my uh, views and my decisions from a young age, assuming that I, um, I, I was studying and I was in the... So I was um, 
just, just after 18, when I was about 19, that's when I went to study in Syria, completely by myself, oh, no adult supervision, um, and it was my decision, and my family didn't know anything about, you know, what was going to happen there. Um, so they had that, that faith. Time, it was um, a very tense time in Syria, wasn't it? Um, no, at that time it was okay, actually. Was it okay? Um, it was before 2001. Oh, right, okay, okay. So... Oh, so did you go to Damascus before you came to Bolton? Yeah. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. I thought it was the other way around. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of the turmoil we see in the world hadn't uh, happened yet. But, the so, you know, when my father passed away, uh, the uh, funeral prayers, washing the deceased, I was actually like a, a leading part in all of that. And that was the first time I, I, I dealt with death and it was like a big shock. I can remember this something very personal, like when I first washing the body and I put a hand on my father, it came as a shock. I couldn't continue for a while because yeah. obviously you, you, a living person and that human touch, it's something very personal and something yeah. very close and it's a warm exchange. And when you first touch a, a deceased person and that cold it's feeling, crazy. it's really, uh, it, it hits you hard. Um, so that was my first experience. Um, and then after becoming an imam, you literally have to deal with that right from the get-go. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, it's important not to become insensitive to the experience of death and washing and shrouding and be remain retain your humanity uh, in, in the face of all of that. But you, you have to deal with it. Yeah, you, have, you have to deal with it. You have to be ready for it. So how do you cope with that? Obviously, there's someone very close to you. So what was your like, coping mechanism? Um, you know, during during COVID, there's a couple of elders passed away in quick succession. Yeah. And because it was COVID circumstances, um, naturally people were very reluctant to uh, bathe the deceased people were very worried in the initial stages themselves so you had to be uh, on call more uh, than normal um, and it really affects you really affects you you know there's a big uh, uh, difference even if it's not someone close if it's someone you know it has such a dramatic effect on you yeah, I remember watching that um, Brother Saeed's body with you. With yes, you. yes. And that, like, it played in my head for yeah. days afterwards. And and because only moments ago they were alive, they were talking yeah. to you. And and uh, that's why, you know, Kafabil Mauti Waidan, death is a sufficient admonition. Death is sufficient admonition. You know, you don't need someone to give you a big lecture. If death is there in front of you, that should suffice us to really um, wake us up to what our ultimate destination is and that's the reality you know it's a bit of, we like to nowadays it's called, considered impolite talking about death in 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 normal conversation a party pooper but the truth is um it has to be that's the reality where we're on a journey and we're gonna have to face it you know we come alone and we're gonna have to leave alone and um it is scary but again you know, we are people of faith. We know what awaits us in the next life. And the, there's a natural fear of death, of course. But our real fear should be, a real concern should be, how am I going to fare in the next life? Exactly. You know? 
to um, lighting the moon, Warana. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, um, <laughs> Jin's death. <laughs> <one's> exactly, <laughs> no, let's lighten the moon a bit now. Definitely so, not have you heard, <laughs> just on that subject, have you heard this thing going about, uh, about some kind of book? Some kind, some person put a video up, or oh, if you read this book, it's about jinns and it's about magic. Um, whoever reads this book, they'll die in the next. This, have you said, heard about that? Uh, a uh, lot of the youngsters were talking about it. I know there's a, um, a thingy, what do you call it? A manga series, or like an anime series on it called Death Note. All right, okay, uh, okay. I don't know if they're referring to that. Okay, no, no it's like actually an uh, Arabic book. Oh, wow. it's an Arabic book written by a scholar and it's supposed to be about black magic and jinns and all of that. And... Um, I can't remember the name of the book someone mentioned. It's actually a real book. Um, when I heard, I uh, downloaded it. And, uh, <laughs> um, and I read a pop. I think I'm still alive. <laughs> eventually. But a lot of the youngsters in Maktab, they were talking about that. So, I thought, oh. so um, the, when you read the book, is it like a legit book? As in yeah, yeah, it's a legit book. And I explained the reasoning behind why people uh, wrote on that subject in the past. Because... The lines between science, between uh, what we could call black magic or superstition nowadays, uh, perhaps, were very blurred. They were considered parts of legitimate science. So the scholars who were scientists and researchers, they would have researched that as well. Yeah, of course. So that's why they wrote on these things as, uh, as well. So anyway, there's all these weird stories going around that some person uh, read part of this book and then uh, um, he got killed and his whole family got killed or something like that. But... Um, just mentioning jinns, I, I thought I'd mention, have you heard anything like that? No. A lot of the kids in um, Maktab, they started to come out, have you heard about this book? Oh no, I'll have to keep an eye on it. Um, what I was going to ask to lighten the mood more is, um, obviously uh, we're praying Tarawih, uh, Isha, Maghrib, and I've been observing something and I'm thinking, how do you cope with it? Um, how do you cope with the burps? Oh no, wow. All right, I was going to say that. <laughs> Seriously, it's like a burping yeah, competition. competition. <laughs> um, I think... I don't know what it is. One of the that's one of the um, downsides. There's good and bad sides to everything. Even alcohol, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala um, says about alcohol, there's much good in it. But wa ithmuhuma akbaru min Gambling and alcohol, the sin in it is better, is greater than um, the good, the benefit. So. Our food is one of the most delicious in the world, yeah. <laughs> but the after is very deadly. I think if you've had like cereal or something, yeah, and then you let one off a burp, then, then the person to your left and right they won't mind that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you have our food, samosa, pakora, kebabs, I'm telling you, you know, biryani. It's air pollution mm, in, the, yeah. <laughs> in the first two rows. <laughs> it's probably like Ramadan. They say uh, global warming, warming, <laughs> global warming. Half is probably from us during Ramadan. So, um, but I did notice something else as well. Um, when we pray Isha Namaz, when um, the senior Imam Sab leads it, mm. and then he comes back to the first row to let the Hafiz um, Sabs mm. to lead the Tarabi, mm. I've noticed that you move away to give him his spot. Mm. Um, obviously, I'm assuming you do that out of respect. But you know, um, it's like one of my things is competition is with the f- getting a spot at the first row. Yeah. <laughs> Me and Jihan, yeah. you know, like, yeah. we tried to get the early to get the first row. But yeah. it's something that I've noticed in the community as well, like giving up space for someone that's elder. Is that something yeah. that's religious or is that yeah. something that's cultural? Yeah, that's actually um, uh, a very interesting point, and it's a famous uh, discussion in the books of Islamic law, and the masala is termed as. Al-Ithar Bil-Qurab That to prefer someone over yourself When it comes to good deeds Now um, is that better 
or is it better not to do it? And um, the famous Hanafi jurist, um, Allama Shami, in his you know famous book, uh, you, you had a copy as well, Hashiyatu Raddil Muhtar, mentions that issue um, in detail and um, he presents both sides of the argument. So he says that um, this generally you're supposed to prefer, prefer yourself when it comes to good deeds, but sometimes preferring someone else is actually a greater good deed. Okay. So especially when it comes to the first row, the Holy Prophet said, of course, that if people knew uh, the reward in what's it, Adhan and um, the first stuff, yeah. um, they would uh, crawl there. Yeah. But then at the same time, there's a lot of indication that uh, the Holy Prophet said that those people who are uh, senior to you, you should prefer them for the first stuff. So, for example, the famous hadith, that those of you of intelligence and um, maturity should uh, follow me in salah, meaning be immediately behind me in salah. Now, based on uh, uh, other ahadith as well, the Holy Prophet once um, uh, was, what do you, uh, there was a, I think it was a dream in when, where the, there was a miswak. And then the, one of the angels said to the Holy Prophet that Kabir, give it to the elder. Okay. Either it was a dream or it was when he was talking to two companions, two brothers, and he instructed the younger to give priority to the elder. So based on a hadith of this nature, uh, the ulama have said that even though it's preferable for a person, or an act of great reward for a person to strive to be in the front stuff, the first row, it is actually better to give someone of seniority uh, preference and okay. what does it mean by seniority uh, the ulama have explained that al-Washibir Ahmad Uthmani in his Fatul Mulhim mentions that uh, seniority in knowledge okay. in piety um, in age and in sharaf meaning in nobility and good community standing yeah, not yeah. so-called leaders meaning really genuine <laughs> good yeah. uh, uh, religious standing these people if you give them priority it's actually a greater good and it doesn't go against the hadith of um, trying your best to be in the first stuff. Okay. So, Alama um, Shami... I'm keeping my spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. And there's, it's it's um, common sense. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, if a person willingly gives their spot to someone else, that's nice of them. And inshallah, they won't, won't lack in reward. They'll yeah. get more reward because they're doing a greater good deed. Um, but again, if a person doesn't, no one has the right to remove them from that space. Yeah, it doesn't matter yeah, who yeah. comes. Yeah, I think that's very yeah. important as well. And that's, uh, yeah. Obviously, you can't reserve your spot. Yeah, you get the first to reserve yeah. the spot that's not appropriate, um, and to demand that someone move away for your sake, that's not right as well. I offer my space to him because he is my senior, he's my teacher also. Oh, so, um, I out of a mark of respect, I do that. I think we've um, if you're my mama, I've got a few questions from people that are listening in, they oh. normally send in like QAs and stuff. Oh, um, and we're hitting 55 minutes mark, so. Yeah, okay. we'll carry on with the questions, but let's not make it too long. Yeah, yeah. We, I think they're, they're really quick. Okay, okay. Um, one of the ones is from a point from that we mentioned before. Is there anything women folk can do to help the Masjid and community grow, or and how can they contribute? Because um, you know you talked about it before, but uh, someone was asking about that. Absolutely, yeah. there. Uh, um, women are the other half of men. This is. Uh, it's a very famous uh, statement in our tradition. I'm not sure if it's a hadith, but it's used as an uh, important part of 
uh, Islamic legislation and understanding of law. I think my, the, my wife's going to remember us up tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, they're the other half of men, and they're equal partners of men. Um, and, well, you know, they say that the first place of learning for a child is the lap of its mother. Yeah. So, of course, absolutely, absolutely, the Holy Prophet Islam would have a separate occasion when he would admonish and uh, teach the women. Yeah. And the women, if you look in the early days of Islam, their role, you know, maybe they weren't on the front line with the uh, sword um, engaging in the defense of uh, the Muslim community, but uh, because religiously that wasn't permitted by the Prophet, but everything else they were not far behind. Um, so in our communities, of course, so the community meaning, the, the number one meaning when it comes to attending the masjid, like I said, Perhaps there may be changes coming soon uh, in the community that would be better for our community and more suited rather than what we have become accustomed to, whereby women are completely detached from the masjid. Personally, I incline that there should be moves to make uh, provisions for them. This is my personal um, inclination. And what can they do? Just as much as men. So, for example, their input understanding Mm-hmm. Um, is very important for I as a man talking about what's good and what's needed for women where it's very important that you have women's voice there yeah. Yeah. so I think it's very important that for especially women's issues uh, their, their voice should be uh, upper, paramount and um, uh, uppermost and secondly in um, there's a lot of the masjid itself is, a traditional masjid is not just a place of worship. The Holy Prophet would conduct many, many matters in the masjid. So the true concept of a masjid is not just a place where you offer five times salah. There's lots of other provisions that you should be providing through the use of the masjid. So one thing that some masajids are providing for communities is homework clubs. So homework clubs, we need our Muslim children to get ahead. You know, Muslim children, there's no alcohol there's no drinking there shouldn't be any social issues we literally our children should be getting top marks and everything we should be getting aiming for all the big jobs and um uh, uh, areas of influence within society but why are our communities still lacking um that's something the community uh, masjid could provide now providing that service it doesn't depend on your gender yeah there are lots of uh, sisters who could contribute in something like that uh, uh, with their experience, with their learning, with their mm-hmm. qualifications. So working with children, um, running spaces and provisions for sisters. If it's run by sisters, it's better. Yeah, of course. Um, charity work and uh, financing the masjid. So uh, uh, women are generally, in my observation, much more generous when it comes to uh, giving for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So uh, funds are required in the masjid, big projects. If you have the funds, you're, you'll be ambitious enough to uh, uh, undertake them. So uh, sisters are more forthcoming in um, as financial assistance. So these are just some measures. And I think the most important thing is engagement and involvement. And I think the time has come that Southeast Asian communities need to understand that sisters, um, they need to be engaged with the dynamics yeah. of the Muslim community. But with our um, Dean Talk um, 
episodes that is one of the things that we want to bring forward as well so mm. we want to talk to sisters as well yeah like on the show so yeah. they can like you know bring forth their concerns and yeah. give their Absolutely. give their st- yeah. uh, opinions and yeah. stuff as well so uh, watch the pipeline yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, that, that was, answers the question yeah, yeah. anything else that was the um, the other one was a general question um, yeah. it was like uh, if someone was to start to make a change in their life what was one of the first because i think we talked about it on one of our first episodes that we said good friends and good companies yeah. probably the first step you take but is there something like a short bite size thing you say where you know when someone's ready to make that change what's one thing that you definitely tell them to start you know like straight away um like good companies one we mentioned yeah. last time but I don't know if you've got... you know um i think one of the most important things is a person this is something that, that doesn't require anything else mm-hmm. they need to focus on allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know that everything centers around allah subhanahu wa ta'ala focus your mind more than other muslims more than going to the masjid more than anything on um remembering allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that every single thing i do it is about pleasing my lord and creator it is about my lord and creator loving me and me being making me uh being connected and conscious of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala focus on that thought then that is a real strength you'll always be right in the uh, guided in the right path if you have that thought of most in your mind when you st- say even friends friends can disappoint you a lot of non muslims uh, uh, reverts when they become muslim they're hugely disappointed of how they're received by uh, fellow muslims yeah. um, they have negative experiences and that puts them off but the but you need to be focused on allah you know it's not about acceptance in the muslim community it's not that's all the byproduct um of that togetherness that ummah you feel a part of something that's a byproduct the, the essence of islam is the rights of my creator keeping my creator happy so i think when a person is first comes to the fold more than anything else i need to stay away from bad company i need to make myself a better person that's all there that's the byproduct and result of treading the path of islam but the most important thing is keeping our mind focused on allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that personal close relationship with allah mm-hmm. you'll see that will help you in anything in your journey for knowledge in your yeah. journey for good company uh, i'll conclude on that you know the scholars of um uh, spirituality they uh, mention two conditions of a, of a human one is called halatul qabd and halatul basat or inqibad and inbisat which is the condition of spiritual receptiveness when you're open when you uh, read salah and you love it you enjoy it you read the quran and it affects you straight away you see the good in people it's so easy to do good worship um, this is imbisat or basat but that doesn't always stay yeah. human nature is that you have a state of qabr as well where you're unreceptive unresponsive salah is a burden it's difficulty other things will aggravate you the anger will get the better of you you just don't feel like doing good things so this is a natural phenomenon it will happen to you it doesn't matter how long you've been a muslim or how long you've been doing salah this will overcome you the best way to tackle those times in life that you will face when you first come onto the deen is your connection with allah if you always think that allah is watching me i'm doing it for his pleasure you'll have the strength to overcome that those situations as well so amazing mashallah um oh, i just want to say um, i thoroughly enjoyed today's episode and it's been an honor having you um 
um, and all the discussions we've had today has been. Can I just say that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala bless your efforts here, and I hope um, first and foremost um, it's been very uh, enjoyable, very pleasurable experience, and a learning experience for me. Um, when you mentioned that you started this format of Dawa work. Um, I congratulate you on the group, and um, uh, it was very encouraging to hear that you're doing this. So um, I hope, inshallah, in the future, it can be a means of benefit for us and um, for all of those listening and many, many more as well. Um, I'll reward so your efforts. Do you boys want to say any final notes? Oh, no, no, thank you. Time to sleep now. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Jazakallah for everyone okay. for tuning and listening. Uh, please remember us in your duas. Assalamu alaikum. Oh,